I'm Boyd Hilton. Welcome to this very special um, Making a Murderer Masterclass. I get to host many things for BAFTA. I'm very lucky that they asked me to do um, to moderate various Q&As. But this is one of the most exciting ones I've ever done, I think, because Making a Murderer is such a cultural phenomenon and is intriguing in every single respect, I think. So we're going to meet the people who created this unique series. So please welcome the directors of Making a Murderer, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos. Welcome. Welcome to London. Welcome to BAFTA. Great to be here. Thank you. Good. Thank Hi. you so much for having us. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, um, you were at the BAFTAs last night. You were nominated for um, the Radio Times Audience Award. You didn't win, sadly. But what was that like? What was the experience <laughs> like of being nominated for a BAFTA and going to the awards ceremony? Did you, did you have a good time? What was it like? I mean, it was outstanding. I mean, to be nominated for the Audience Award, like of all the awards, you know, the we can't really think of anything more important than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was an honor to be invited and to be included. And we're hoping we'll get to see some of, you know, actually all of the other shows that were in the category. We, we haven't been able to find them yet, though. We did, we did find Dr. Foster on the plane on the way over here. So we really enjoyed that. Dr. Foster's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. We actually we just wanted to stay on the plane, but oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they'll get you tapes of right. all the shows. <laughs> you get some pulled nice. up. Yeah, yeah. Um, making a murder. Um, famously, you worked on it for ten years, and um, it all stemmed from you seeing an article on the New York Times front page. But I want to go back almost a little bit before that to um, that you you went to film school, um, graduated, and uh, you studied film. But did you particularly focus on documentary? Was that your kind of? Did you study? You know, was that your particular area of interest or not particularly? Moira and I met in a, a master's of film program at Columbia University in New York. And at the time, it was exclusively a narrative program. So we weren't studying nonfiction, though. Um, when we first read about Stephen Avery in November of 2005, we were in the research arts phase of the program. We'd completed all of our coursework and were preparing for our thesis. And... Um, Maureen Ryan, who became a mentor of ours, she's collaborated with James Marsh and um, Albert Mazels, and she actually offered a nonfiction class where she was bringing in um, directors who had works in progress. And actually, James Marsh visited the class, and he's one of our favorites, so that was really special. Um, So that was really the only taste of nonfiction we got in that particular program, but we were always... I was especially interested in nonfiction, And I had um, worked as a documentary film editor before right. going to film school. So, you know, yeah. there was a lot of it in, in us, right. though not in the program. Sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Um, and that, so this, it's, it's true, isn't it? It all stemmed from you reading this New York Times article. Um, you, you read, a lot of people might have read that article and gone, yeah, I'll, uh, I don't know, I'll write to them or I'll, I'll tell my friends about it. But you decided to go there and and <laughs> start this process. What, what was that conversation between you? How did that, how did that happen? Well, it sort of went like this. Um, Moira and I were actually taking the train from New York City up to Massachusetts for the Thanksgiving holiday. It was the day before Thanksgiving, and I picked up the paper to read on the train. Stephen was on the front page, and the headline read, Freed by DNA, Now Charged in New Crime. And this was just a couple of weeks after he was charged in the Halbach case. 
I had a background in law and knew a bit about the exoneration movement and um, came to learn through the article that Stephen was one of Wisconsin's first DNA exonerees. And I started reading the article. We were with Moira's cousin as well. She and he were. I think were. about every three minutes, like, got an elbow in the <laughs> side. Right. Listen to this. Yeah. Listen to this. Yeah. yeah. So I felt very compelled by the article. It was it was really um, amazing. The focus of it, interestingly, was on the backlash the Wisconsin Innocence Project was suffering as a result of having been instrumental in getting Stephen exonerated for the first crime. Right. So there was already some public discourse about, you know, oh, isn't it unfortunate that they freed this man because now he's gone and killed this poor woman. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Stephen was just newly charged. Mm-hmm. So got to the end of the article and um, read that Stephen's brother Chuck actually commented to the reporter, I'll give you 36 million reasons why law enforcement would want to set him up in this case and recognize the conflict of interest there because of the the parties and um, talk to Moyer about, you know, going out and pursuing it. Yeah, so we had sort of that holiday long weekend to talk about it and you know, what we sort of recognized in this in this short article, really, it's not very long, but this unprecedented opportunity. You know, here was a man who had clearly 20 years prior been failed by the system and, you know, now through a series of circumstances was stepping back into it. Sure. And in those 20 years, we'd had reforms, DNA had advanced, there was a lot of talk of you know, right at the same moment that you're sort of coming to grips with the fact that there are wrongful convictions, you're also learning, oh, but we didn't have DNA back then, so maybe, like, this isn't really a problem we have to worry about. We just mm-hmm. have to get people out now. So it was really a chance to, to test that. You know, how much progress have we made? Are the problems fixed? Mm-hmm. And to use Stephen's story, no matter where it went, as as a window into the system. So when you decided to travel to Wisconsin and, and start working on this. What, what did you have in mind? What, do you know what it was going to be? Did you have any sense of what you were starting to create? Well, the Monday after the holiday, I contacted the clerk of court's office to find out whether... Let me back up. In the newspaper article, there was mention that Stephen had an upcoming court date, and it was going to be his preliminary hearing. The purpose of that hearing was for the court to determine whether or not there was enough evidence to hold him over for trial. So I contacted the clerk's office to find out whether Moira and I could cover it with cameras, and that person put us in touch with a media coordinator, and we soon found out that there was going to be a television camera pool, um, and that provided there was room for us, we could plug in and and join. And so that's what we did. We... (laughs) Yeah, we sort of decided, well, let's let's go to Wisconsin for a week. Let's right. see, you know, is this doable? Is there a story? Um, so we went out for the preliminary hearing, which is actually the first scene in episode three. So right after right. the main titles would come after this, and yep. then you'd be at Stephen's preliminary hearing. And that was our first day of shooting, um, covering the arrivals and everything and, and the actual court date. Um, and I think... You know, I mean, even in that first day, just the the charged atmosphere, already there was, you know, huge conflict. We had compelling characters. There was a lot of the ingredients of a story worth following just from our very first day of shooting. But I guess to get to your question of do we know 
yeah. what we were doing um, yeah. in terms of where this would lead. Um, I mean, I think in anything, when it's real life, you never know exactly where it would lead. But I think we knew going in, well, we, I think we thought we were making a documentary feature. I mean, right. this was December of 2005. You know, that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, and we thought we had enough to do that. We knew there was a significant history that would contextualize what we were going to cover. We knew we had a man who was saying, I didn't do it. I'm being framed. He was not going to take a plea bargain, so there was going to be a trial. So we thought, we certainly have a feature here mm-hmm. if we follow this case and and at the same time look back and try to investigate and gather materials and do interviews about w- w- everything that came before. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think as we, you know, just a few months in to our documentation, when Brendan Dassey came on the scene, that just sort of, exploded everything. The story was much more complicated. The case was much more complicated. The family story was more complicated. So quite early on, it became hard to imagine how it would fit Mm. into a feature-length film. And I guess there must have been strict rules about it. So this was an impending case. Mm. You you had legal background. Mm -hmm. Did you know what you could and couldn't do in terms of your coverage of it at that stage? Or was it something you had to kind of work out well, there were certainly some real obstacles or challenges for us. For instance, Stephen was incarcerated the entire time we were filming, um, still is to this day. So we knew that we would not have direct on-camera access to him. the type of intimate access we had with his family, for instance. Um, we could film him in public spaces like the perp walks you see or in the courtroom, but, but that was it. So that was... One of the challenges we faced because the case was pending and because he was indigent and could not afford bail. Um, other sorts of challenges we faced were just in terms of, um, you know, the types of things we could explore in sit-down interviews. So, for instance, you saw in that last clip Walter Kelly, who was one of Stephen's civil rights attorneys. Um, we talked to him and Steve Glynn at length. They were co-counsel with respect to the civil rights lawsuit. And um, they had to be very careful in terms of their responses to my questions about um, the types of claims Stephen had brought with respect to the lawsuit, what sorts of um, dots they were connecting through discovery in that case and that sort of thing. Because the civil lawsuit was still pending, there was no admission of liability on the part of law enforcement or or the county. Um, and then another obvious parameter was when we were filming with Stephen's defense attorneys in the Hallbach case, um, and later Brendan's as well. They, I mean, Len was more willing to share things that probably should not have been shared, but Dean and Jerry were quite careful mm. about, um, you know, when we could film with them and what we could discuss. But I would also add, you know, I think some of the limitations were also coming from our end of knowing what our role was. Mm. You know, we mm-hmm. were not asking people about facts of the case. We were asking, you know, whoever was there, it was their experience, mm. their perspective. You know, we weren't there. You know, whatever happened to Teresa Hallbuck happened long before we got there. We weren't there to solve the crime. We mm. were there to document the process, Yeah, you know, that would hopefully solve the crime and bring justice. Yeah. So we were really just trying to document people's experiences. 
Yeah, I mean, oh, I'm sorry. No, go I was just going to say the, the experience of the accused actually yeah. was really our main concern. Right. We, we chose Stephen to be our main character, and we knew once he said yes that we would be on a journey with him. So we were interested in, in his goal, his want, what was in his way, and, you know, whether or not he would be able to achieve his goal. So just reminding people that you, you didn't have access to him, you couldn't visit him in jail, so you had to speak to him on the phone, presumably. And so at what point, did, it must have been odd for him to have to agree that you could meet his family and do all that, not really having met you. What was that process like? Well, that's the other thing that was, you know, challenging for us. I mean, every conversation we've ever had with Stephen has been recorded. And in Wisconsin, the way the system works is... If someone charged with a crime, um, you know, makes comments over a recorded line while they're in custody, those recordings are admissible in court. So, and Stephen was in custody from November of 2005 through, um, you know, through his trial. Mm. So um, I had to be very careful whenever I spoke with him not to get into the facts of the case. I never asked him you know, did you commit this crime or, or anything like that? Um, it was it was much more about, you know, can we begin to understand what it's like to be accused of a crime in America and, and to be accused as someone who, as Moira said, has already been failed by the system and, you know, someone with your background um, and with a victim like this, you know, what is it like? So that's really what we were after. And his family were they? Did, did it take time to win their trust over, or was it? Were they? Presumably, with his consent, they were they were they were happy to take part. Yeah, I mean, I think the sequence was that um, we wrote a letter to Stephen, which is really how we approached most of our subjects by writing a letter to introduce ourselves, why we were making the project, what role, why we thought they were an important part of the the show series, what it became. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had written a letter to Stephen and I think arranged for him to call us um, so we could speak with him. And through that conversation, he then arranged that we would go to the salvage yard and meet with Dolores and her son Chuck. So we had an initial meeting with them. Again, it really an introductory, here's who we are, here's what we're doing. Um, and then that led to, I think, a week or two later doing our first filming with them, which actually is, um, I think our first day of shooting with Dolores was the um, the scene where her and her son Chuck and her daughter Barb are all sitting in the living room and they're reading sort of hate mail they're receiving. Mm. So that was yeah. just, you know, a week or two after we met them. And what was your early impression of that? I mean, that, uh, this is a British viewer. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, it seemed very alien, I think, to, to us um, that where, that not only was this a small community and that he, they, were the, they were outsiders, him and his family, but that the whole, the huge yard with all the cars and they had a very, it felt like a, a kind of unique situation where he was, they were outside of the community that itself seemed fairly, very small and, and tight-knit. Did it seem that way to you? Did it seem like a kind of extraordinary, most physical situation in itself? I mean, there was sort of a physical representation of the class dynamic and of the social dynamic. I mean, this is, you know, a beautiful rural area on the shores of Lake Michigan in Wisconsin. There's, you know, iconic dairy farms everywhere you look. And then there's these, you know, 
these junked cars yeah. filling 40 acres. And, you know, at first blush, that's an eyesore. But mm. then when you start walking around and you see the, <laughs> you know, glistening, interesting colors reflecting the light, it's actually not exactly that. But um, but certainly, you know, our first drive out to the property, we don't, you know, this is the alleged crime scene. We don't know anybody. There's certainly some trepidation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you try to be open. You try to be there to, to absorb and to listen and not to judge. So you have to kind of take that every step of the way. And when you were meeting not only the family but then local law enforcement and you were meeting mm-hmm. lawyers and, um, I guess, fellow members of the media that were covering the case, mm-hmm. did you feel uh, like outsiders yourselves? Were you welcomed by most of them? How, what was it like? I'm thinking. <laughs> um, were there any key th- like, people who did welcome you and did help you early on in, that, in, that, in those kind of early stages of filming? Not necessarily on the county side. I mean, I think they they had a responsibility to respond to things like open records requests. And, you know, they couldn't totally deny us access to things that are considered public records. You know, so, for instance, there were times where we would literally go to the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department with cameras and be let into a room um, by the person in charge of records there. And, you know, he'd take out the file they have on Stephen Avery and take out Stephen's mugshots. And Moira was reminding me recently we did that, and Gregory Allen's photos seemed to be in Stephen Avery's file, which we thought was quite interesting. Gregory yeah, Allen we, the, was the man. The who, sort of yellow card with Gregory Allen that you right. see in episode right. one. The only reason we have that is because we asked to see Stephen's file, and it was in the folder, and I quietly took pictures of it. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. 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 So she might be, he was the guy who... Did it? He 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 confessed. He seems to have been the <laughs> actual perpetrator right. of the Penny Burns assault. The original yeah. crime for mm-hmm. which for which Stephen was yeah. wrongly convicted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But it is an interesting question because we were. I mean, yes, we were outsiders. We were these two women from New York City arriving right. in rural Wisconsin, and you know, to some people, outsiders or people that you know they've never seen before, they don't really know exactly what they're about, that's interesting, and they're curious, and they want to find out more. And to other people, an unknown is something, you know, to put up block blockades mm. to. So, you know, different individuals responded differently. But, I mean, as far as local media, um, you know, it was a very collaborative environment. Just, I mean, we were all there covering every court date, covering every press conference, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the cameramen shooting so there certainly was a sort of crew-like hmm. camaraderie, even though, of course, we were there doing such different jobs. You know, we would be there, and then we'd see, go home, and they would be on the news talking about it, and we would be, you know, logging our footage. So sure. we had a very different time frame sure. to our work. Right. I mean, we were trying to be fly on the wall, hmm. you know, um, which might seem a little confusing because, of course, we're covering the press conferences along with the local media. But... At some point, we realized that, you know, I think we'd made the decision early on that I would not be asking questions. I wasn't an active part of the press conferences. Um, And as Moira said, she was getting in there with, like, you know, the tall cameramen and that sort of thing. Um, But because we were observing, I think at some point we realized, well, you know, the members of the media actually have become subjects 
mm. in the series. And so we started turning our cameras on them as well. Um, but we tried to be as low impact as possible and tried to establish a rapport with the local media as much as we did with any other subjects so that by the time we got to trial, um, there was a media room set up and it was arranged that there would be daily press conferences um, at the end of each court date. The media were quite active in the room and so there was a, a static camera that was set up by the media to get whoever was at the podium that day, Dean, Jerry, Ken Kratz, Mike Halbach, and then Moira was shooting and getting the reverse shots so she would get the uh, reporter's questions. Was that natural in terms of the collaboration between the two of you, of who was doing what and which of you were carrying out particular tasks? Was that something that just kind of fell into place or was it something you talked about how we're going to... I mean, there was certainly a natural way for us to get started in it, just given our different backgrounds. I mean, we both went to film school in our 30s, so we had had prior careers. Thirty. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I had, I had worked on film sets for almost a decade doing lighting and camera work, and then, as I mentioned, I had been a documentary editor. Um, Laura has a background in law. Um, so there was sort of a, to some degree, a no-brainer aspect of, okay, well, if any two people could hypothetically pull this off, like, maybe the two of us could. So, you know, I was handling the cameras and the sound and the tapes, and Laura was conducting the interviews and going to the clerk's office and reading through the case files, and, Mm -hmm. you know, so there was a sort of obvious division of labor that just happened, but then... You know, the more we're living there, the more we're talking about what is it we're actually capturing, what is this story, you know, it starts becoming more than, you know, one plus one or whatever. Mm. And it, it becomes, you know, it, the sum is greater than the two. Right. And, you know, the, the real collaboration rather than just simply working side by side. Yeah. 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 Um, you mentioned um, Brendan is involved in being a turning point. I mean, I think... For for view, certainly for me watching it, that that press conference, that Ken Kratz press conference, where he suddenly he reveals the mm-hmm. torrid, second, extraordinary details, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. of of the accusations. Because in many ways, f- particularly shocking, I think, for a British audience, because that would, would never happen here. We don't see, mm-hmm. with you know, it almost can't happen. I think um, legally. But mm-hmm. um, what was it like for you? Were you as astonished by that press conference as as we were? Absolutely. I mean. We were actually packing home, packing up, ready to go home, uh, head back to New York for a while, and we received a call, and we were told law enforcement is going to have a press conference tonight, and it was the press conference the night before, March 1st, where Ken Kratz reveals that a member of Stephen Avery's family has implicated Stephen and himself, and then says, you know, I'm going to have another press conference tomorrow. So like all other members of the media, we, we marched out to Calumet County for the March 2nd press conference, and we were shocked. I mean, we we were in the moment with everybody else in that room. It was such a devastating graphic narrative of what had happened to this poor woman. And, yeah, I just I remember being stunned and then talking to Chuck Avery that night and... Um, yeah, and that call, you know, I think, is in there. Yeah, that you call know, when, is in there. When Chuck right. is like, I don't, you know, 
now I don't know what happened. Maybe yeah. they did, like only them to know what happened. And I think, you know, the power of, you know, you see that press conference in the series in maybe a four minute edit, mm. but, you know, that story was 40 minutes of right. this mm-hmm. very detailed, very gory, very terrifying narrative that, mm-hmm. you know, it has a palpable effect on mm. human beings with mm. any feeling. So, and he's yeah, stating it's absolute fact. You know, he's saying this is this is mm-hmm. factually what happened. Yeah, you know? he says something at the outset, like, you know, we now know exactly what happened right. <laughs> on October thirty first, and you know, it's being broadcast live at two, three o'clock in the afternoon. He gives a, an, you know, as Dean later says, you know, the equivalent of an R rating to his own press conference, and says anyone who's you know fifteen years old or younger should tune out now um, right i think it was at 3 p.m in the afternoon yeah L- carried live on all television right. like the whole 40 minutes yeah right. and i i think you know as americans because moira and i have been traveling internationally speaking about the series and invariably we hear from journalists and others that you know that sort of thing doesn't happen in other countries and i think as americans we really need to understand why we tolerate that sort of thing and um, another thing another thing that strikes me as, as not happening um only happening possibly in in america or even maybe in this in that particular area was was brendan's interview when that when that footage you have of him being this ex- interrogated, asked, interrogated. Yeah. um uh, one question about this all of that that extraordinary footage that key, was that something was that something that had to hand over to the police or or that you had to kind of Source yourselves. How all of most of that footage, but that key, the key interrogation footage. How did you get hold of it? It's a public record. Right. It was part of the case file, and um, Wisconsin at the time actually had a very expansive public records law. Anything that was um, created by a, a state or county official was considered to be in the public domain. So it, it was accessible. Yeah. And again, um, what was your when you first so did you first see that footage? At what point, if you like, in the in the story? Do you remember when you first saw that? And what what your your feeling was? Do you, again, did you feel looking for us looking at it as British people mm-hmm. looking at it, you? Just you think that could not? I think my first thing was oh, they couldn't possibly this couldn't be admissible because it's so clearly wrong that they're leading him so obviously, mm-hmm. and yet it was used. Um, a different different pieces of archival footage we came to at different moments, right. which was kind of an interesting experience because the viewer gets it yes. in a nice order. Yes. But, um, but that interrogation, that March 1st interrogation of Brendan Dassey, we were able to watch um, sometime in, between 2006 and seven. So we had seen it before he went to trial. Right. Um, and... You know, so we could recognize then later in episode nine at trial when they in fact are not playing the whole thing, yeah. what implications that would have for a jury member. Um, but um, other things like what you see later in episode four when Michael O'Kelly, a member of Brendan's own defense team, his defense investigator, is more or less interrogating his own client. We didn't see that until 2010 wow. when that was part of a post-conviction motion. So... I mean, that was a very dramatic moment for us watching that. I mean, we were actually That was where he's drawing, like, getting him to draw the different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we yeah. were like, wait, who, I don't know this. I don't know this officer. Like, which cop is this? You know, yeah. and then 
realizing, oh, this isn't a cop. This is his defense investigator. And yeah, yeah. So was that just was that shocking? You know, in terms in the context of, did you ever see anything any footage like that before in in an American case? Or it was, and it seems pretty extraordinary. No, I mean, it absolutely shocks the conscience. It's the complete opposite of what a defense team or a member of a defense team is supposed to do. You know, um, the defense is supposed to, you know, his representatives are supposed to zealously advocate on his behalf. They're not supposed to judge him or decide whether or not he's guilty. They're supposed to put on a defense if that's what he chooses he wants. And that's what we came to learn um, both through Len's immediate successors, uh, Ray and Mark, who were actually Brendan's trial attorneys, and then later the lawyers from the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth, Northwestern, who are representing him now. And in terms of, um, at that point, in terms of the filming of it and uh, finance, well, you were financing all of this yourselves, weren't you? You were credit cards, all of that, and partly was the style of it, in a way, the kind of rough and ready, that was just the way it had to be. It was the way it had to be. I mean, the dynamic of reading about this incredible thing that was already happening. We were already late to the game. Yeah. So there was no development. There was no fundraising. We just had to go out and do it. Um, so, yes, credit cards. I mean, luckily we were still students, so there were extra student loans we could apply for. But, of course, this is all then money you have to carry as debt and try to not default on through the years. Yeah. But, yeah – and it was also all happening, so we had to we just had to keep filming for that first sort of year and a half, and then we came back to New York, where we lived at the time, and just had to go back to work so that we could you know sort of stay afloat, which was you know it became very part time for a while oh, okay. just practically speaking right. it does a lot of it feels like the story it feels like a, a cast of an extraordinary cast of characters it's used the cliche that you you wouldn't make up if it was fiction um when you was, as you were going along, as you were putting pieces together, did you, did you, was it difficult to kind of uh, establish a way, a structure, if you like, where you could establish these characters like Lenkachinsky and have a section where you're explaining who he is and kind of narratively lay out how you're going to do it? How did that process work how, in terms of getting your cast of characters around Stephen Avery and telling the story and letting us meet those people? Well, um, you know, in a story like this, which is, I think, true of anything in this, at least plot-wise genre of, you know, a case or a a criminal matter, you have a very clear um, backbone. You know, you you have a case that, you know, you know is going to go somewhere. You know there's going to be these opposing sides. So in some, you know, in many documentaries, you're searching for your story or you're searching for your structure. But, you know, we knew we had that. And so then it really was a matter of sort of putting the flesh on the skeleton, so to speak. Um, and and we knew, you know, we knew some of our main characters and their supporting characters, their ancillary characters. Like you said, like we didn't have access to direct access to Stephen Avery, so we had to rely on sort of his family and then later his lawyers to mm-hmm. sort of speak for him and his wants. Um, but one of, one of the main sort of structural or proportion issues we had in structuring it was actually around this around we had this huge character emerge Brendan Dassey who such compelling scenes between him and his mother his storyline his lawyers 
you know, how was that story not going to take over when we were really documenting a 30-year story of, of mm. Stephen Avery's journey? Um, so certainly these episodes three and four where Brendan Dassey emerges, that was a tricky thing. Um, and you see here, you know, using Dean to talk about, you know, Brendan's storyline is impacting Stephen's storyline. So even mm. if nothing is exactly going on in Stephen's case, the way Brendan's case is impacting that, you know, keeps these two narrative threads very interrelated. Mm-hmm. Did you like? Did you do things like you know? Did you have kind of post-it notes of like which? At this point, by the way, were you? you it was quite clear you weren't going to be able to fit the story into a feature. It was going to be a longer piece. Did you have a? At what, at what point are you thinking? How many episodes is it going to be? And what kind of structure for the actual as a series it was going to be? Was that you were kind of fathoming that as you were going along? I think probably for the first eight years or so, we were we were <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to. You know, to make it something it wasn't. Like we were, we were trying to modify what we believed it needed to be in order to satisfy a distributor, and um, or at least struggling with that rub. Yeah, because I would say, you know, we were meeting with distributors along the way, and they were very interested. But what was being talked about was a two-hour one-off or maybe a four-part series, and we kept making the sort of decision of like I'm not sure this is going to be right and mm-hmm. so we clearly were attached to something longer and we had outlines for I think the first the first non-feature move was the three part and then the more we worked and the more we shot it became a five part <laughs> with an epilogue right. and then sort of you know the more we worked in a certain section of the footage and found how rich and detailed and nuanced the story was the more something couldn't be simplified and had to Right. Get a little longer. Yeah. I mean, you know, going back to, for instance, the March 2nd press conference that we were talking about earlier, like, that was a moment where we had, you know, a real experience, like, in the room. And um, ultimately, what we wanted to do, what we ultimately wanted to share with our viewers was very much akin to our own experience on this journey. So, you know, you see something play out in public and then begin privately to unpack it through sit-down interviews or maybe even through looking at archival materials or primary source materials, and you start to see, well, there's actually some disparity between what we were told, um, you know, at a press conference or what we heard in court and... um, you know what what was actually going on behind the scenes like there's a scene in the series where Stephen Avery is in custody the prosecutor Ken Kratz and Sheriff Jerry Pogle have just concluded a press conference and they're standing up they're leaving one of the journalists asks do you know where Stephen Avery is and the sheriff Jerry Pogle at first says no I don't and you know in disbelief she's like you don't know where Stephen Avery is you know and then Sher- Sheriff Poggle has to admit well we know where he is we're just not going to tell you you know and you realize that you know he's in custody at that very moment being interrogated by Mark Wiegert and Tom Fossbender so there's a there's a clear disconnect between what the public is being told and what's happening behind the scenes but what you also learn is that Stephen Avery's lawyer is on the phone with Jerry Poggle trying to find out where his client is and isn't being told. Yeah. So there's a lot more 
So with the goal in mind of wanting to, you know, try to give viewers an experience that was similar to our own, we thought that would be the richest story we could tell. Um, we felt we needed the space. We needed, you know, a large palette to really tell the story so that we could let scenes play out. You know, we could sit in a scene for four minutes. And, I mean, we never intended for the series to to be slick in any way or have fast cutting or anything like that. We wanted it to be a deeper dive, and we wanted to understand, you know, dynamics and history and context and all of that. And we thought the most effective way to do that is longer format. What were the particular challenges of you haven't got a narration? You're, it's, as you say, it's fly on the wall. It's very much a classic kind of documentary style. What were the particular challenges of putting all of this material together without you being able to explain over the top of the voiceover or whatever what was going on? Well, that decision, you know, the decision not to narrate, I mean, I'm not even sure if that was a di- that was just a given going right. in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think we each maybe got into filmmaking for sort of some of the unique things that film offers versus other other ways of storytelling mm-hmm. that, you know, film can can show, can, you know, in screenwriting you're always told, you know, show, don't tell. Right. So that was sort of ingrained in us. And, um, you know, as Laura mentioned, wanting to give the viewers an experience, you know, when we were talking to networks about could this be four parts and you're trying to think how could that happen well I would have to simplify the history so leave a lot of the history out I would have to probably just you know narrate or have somebody narrate these plot events Mm. and you know plot and story are very different so um, it would just be stripped down and from our perspective you know it wouldn't be the same story Mm. Did you have particular influences in terms of documentary making that, in, 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 on you that films or, or, or series that you thought that's the kind of thing we'd like to do? We certainly did. I mean, in terms of um, stories that involved, you know, characters who had been convicted of crimes or were accused of crimes, we looked at, for instance, um, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky's trilogy, the Paradise Lost trilogy, um, Certainly Errol Morris, The Thin Blue Line. Um, and then there were filmmakers who were working on other types of stories, like Barbara Koppel, um, who made really compelling films like Harlan County, USA, and American Dream. And then, of course, Frederick Wiseman, who, um, you know, makes amazing verite documentaries, mainly about American institutions. but. Mm. Those were all certainly influences. And as you're putting the pieces together, as you're editing, did, did the themes of it kind of were they drawing out? Were they there right from the start? Class, you know, for us again, there's a real issue of class. It seems to me, and that was that something that was there. Was that something you were bringing out in when you're watching the footage back? Well, I think that particular theme, class, was very apparent from soon after our arrival right. in Manitowoc of the dynamics in the town and. Other thing. I mean, it was a it was a fascinating sort of experiment. I mean, here was a community in the U.S. where there was little to no diversity. You know, racial, ethnic, not even that much economic variety, mm. and yet there was such a incentive to divide. 
to make sure we're not like you and you're not like us. And so it was sort of an opportunity to look at that, that human instinct that we do. And it happens throughout all history. No matter what groups there are, there are ways of separating. So it was sort of a nice microcosm to look at that. Um, but that was apparent right away. But other themes, I think, did did reveal themselves through through the footage, through the research, through, you know, thinking it through more and more, you know, um, certainly, you know, this dynamic of, you know, can we learn from history? Like, how, how does history get preserved or does it get re-narrated and rewritten constantly so that it serves those in power? Mm. Um, you know, accountability in our institutions, whether it be accountability for people committing crimes like Gregory Allen or the lack of accountability for that or the, you know the fact that through the attorney general's investigation in Wisconsin you know the ruling was nobody did anything wrong of consequence right. when there was hard evidence to the contrary mm-hmm. yeah and I remember just for myself having some eureka moments like Moira and I discussing something like, you know, narrative disguised as truth. And I was thinking like, oh, I was always so interested in courtroom dramas. And I even used to think like, is that why I chose to go to law school? You know, but then I'd realize, you know, it's just a lawyer in court, you know, telling a story that may or may not be true, but it's accepted, you know, can be accepted as true. Um, so that theme definitely emerged for us. And another is just the power of accusation, you know, and how any of us can be accused of anything at any time and, and just how powerless we all are in the face of accusation because, and Dean talks about this in the series, you know, if you're fortunate enough, if you, if you haven't done the deed and you're fortunate enough to, to overcome that accusation, um, you can still be tarnished by it because it's affected your reputation. And um, that's a very powerful thing. I mean, we've been out doing, I'll call it PR, I guess, for the series. And, you know, we cannot get through an interview. And maybe you'll ask us about this. I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, without people asking us about, and not in the nicest way, about our process. Mm. We appreciate being given the opportunity to respond to accusations that Ken Kratz has lodged against us or, you know, certain folks in the media. But, um, you know, it's, it's not pleasant when you're sitting down to do an interview and someone makes assumptions about you or your process and poses questions in that way. They have an edge or there's a built-in accusation and you're sort of on the defensive. And, you know, so there's there can be a healthy dialogue about all of this. I mean, we, I, mean I, I still feel like I have a learning curve. I've been thinking a lot in the past year about, you know, I mean, people have referred to this as journalism and just questioning, like, are we journalists or are we documentary filmmakers or are we just filmmakers and are there similarities are there differences and if so what are they and just trying to understand like the nature of different disciplines and all of that so um, I just wish that if you know that it wouldn't all become wouldn't all seem so sinister or you know be made out to be so salacious because I mean, we, we made a decision early on that we were not going to respond to 
what we consider to be manufactured controversy and opportunistic media. But, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe at some point we'll write a book or something or, or you know, if we do fu- future episodes, we might address the sorts of, you know, the so-called missing evidence that's mm. not in the series. We, we might address it, you know. Did you, I guess in the end, it was, was, it, was it not inevitable that Ken Kratz, for example, would um, fight back, you know, would have to defend his corner in a way? And I guess his way of doing it, one of his ways of doing it was to accuse you of being, of, of being biased or whatever, as we would say. So did, you, did, did it strike you that was going to happen? Or were you surprised by the way, by his accusation? Can I say one thing? (laughs) I mean, what's very interesting about it, and this goes back to the the New York Times article, is, you know, what Chuck Avery is talking about in that article when he says, I'll give you 36 million reasons why law Mm. enforcement... Recrimination. Mm. You know, you, you accuse me of doing something, or you demonstrate through a civil rights lawsuit where depositions are being taken... You know, documents are being turned over that are quite powerful, that something has happened. And, you know, there is the possibility that he could have been accused in order to derail the lawsuit. Yeah. You know, so it, it can be effective because, again, accusation is, is powerful. Yeah. Sorry, Mara. <laughs> no, I mean, I was just going to – I mean, sure. I mean, I would, I would expect no less from Ken Kratz. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, we – it was a five-week trial. There were something like 900 exhibits. Like, there's always going to be eight or nine things he can put on a list. Mm. No matter what we put in, he yeah. can put eight or nine things on a list that we didn't put in. I mean, it's a no-brainer. I think what was more troubling was that those were those were not fact-checked by reporters before then, you know, we're on live television being accused of leaving out mm. damning evidence that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. So it was a little bit. And he he yeah. said that you didn't approach him, or you know, he he basically claimed that he. He wasn't then backed off from that right, once okay. Laura reminded him that our letter inviting him to participate is in the court file, and right. that anybody <laughs> yeah. could go look for that. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's hard um, because the theme, you know, the big idea of this series is that a huge miscarriage of justice mm-hmm. has definitely taken place. The first crime of which he was exonerated, yeah. and then the extraordinary situation where he has launched a 36 million lawsuit and wouldn't you wouldn't you know it he's then arrested mm-hmm. for this second crime allegation second crime it would be i mean for i think again maybe this is a british thing but to our to my eyes and i think a lot of people i've spoken to about it they're like well, of course you're going to you've got to investigate you've got to report on you've got to show the possibility that this is a massive setup mm-hmm. so that element of it, if you like, the, the lawsuit connection to the fact that all these law enforcement people are defending mm-hmm. themselves, if you like, mm-hmm. it would have been bizarre not to have explored that as a huge element of this process, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I think so. <laughs> I mean, what's very interesting is that, you know, people in law enforcement were publicly stating there's no overlap. Right. You know, there's no overlap in personnel from 85 to 9 between the lawsuit and now. Um, so there wasn't, you know, other coverage of the case was not, it was always, you know, the Averys are alleging they're being framed because of this lawsuit, but there was no looking into the depositions, who was saying what in the depositions, how damning was that, how much were they personally on the line for what they were being deposed about. So, um, it seemed, 
you know, worth laying out for people. Yeah. Uh, let's speak at what point, so in the, you're, you're in the process of how many hours roughly do you, do you think you had in the end uh, to turn into a 10-part series? Do you know? We had, I think, easily over 1,000 hours right. of um, footage, plus we had... Yeah, that's only, you know, video, like AV. There's then um, over 1,000 hours of phone calls. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah. And tens of thousands of documents, which, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the footage is doc- scanned mm-hmm. documents. Yeah. So it's all these different media mm-hmm. put together. Yeah, I mean, you asked earlier about, you know, the editorial process. and. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges was just the sheer volume of material we had. I mean, um, in terms of documents as well, we we must have covered at least five matters in the series. The 1985 wrongful conviction, that transcript alone is over a 1,000 pages. Um, there was Stephen's post-conviction efforts in the mid-'90s. I had that file. Um, the civil rights lawsuit, and then Halbach. I mean, the Halbach investigation was touted as Wisconsin's largest criminal investigation ever. So um, we had tons, tons of materials. And, you know, we, I mean, next time around, I, th- I would hope that we would have more help, <laughs> you know, to sort through it all. But um, it just means that we have incredible institutional knowledge now of, of all of these cases. Right. So, and at one point, did Netflix come in? And at what point, you know, and say? And at what point was it decided between you guys and Netflix that it would be a ten-part series and that it would mm-hmm. be turned out in this way? Um, well, we first, you know, had our first meetings and calls with Netflix. I think in the spring of 2013, um, and we approached them. I think at the time we were approaching them with an eight-part series. Um, we had an outline. We had rough cuts of the first three episodes, which are more or less the first three episodes you see. Um, we had sketches of other episodes. So we really, you know, because through the years we were learning this needs to be a series. You know, we're the ones to tell it. And so, you know, who's going to give these first-time filmmakers a green light to do that? We need to make enough of it so they they can't say no. They can see what it could be mm. or what it is, really. Um so, you know, we had sort of a dream-like first meeting of we walk in, they've read everything, they've seen everything, they love it, they said they want to do it. Um, but it wasn't until August of 14 that the ink is actually dry. Right. And, um, so that was a long process. <laughs> Not funny. Um, yeah, that was a rough year. <laughs> right. Um, okay. You know, we were continuing to shoot and to edit in that time, you know, yeah. confident that the ink would get on the paper right um but um so you know a, maybe 15 months before it launched they were officially mm-hmm. involved um yeah i mean in a way the timing was great to meet netflix because um you know they we met with them and it was only afterwards that they launched their originals division so when we found out that this we you know we we were clearly aware of house of cards and orange is the new black on the scripted side so to be accepted as one of their first projects on the nonfiction original side was really exciting for us because we always wanted this to be, I mean, once we knew this was going to be long form, um, we wanted it to be, to be event programming in a way. We wanted to make sure um, that it would be brought to the attention of as many people as possible. 
And once they um, once they did sign sign on, it was all good. did they give you like a deadline? Did they say because famously it was put out just before Christmas last mm-hmm. year? It was just, the timing seemed perfect because it gave people ch- a time to watch the whole thing. Um, was that the plan right from the start? So did you have then suddenly to work to that deadline? Not right from the start, okay. um, but. I mean, we basically, I think, had a 52-week schedule that at some point got extended to 59 weeks. Um, But then sometime in the summer, we were asking for more time, and they seemed like they were like, yeah, let's talk about that for a long time. And then finally when we got on the phone, they were like, no, we're launching in December. (laughs) And we were like, that's impossible. We can't. Um, So... I mean, I think we finished on December 15th, and it launched on December 18th. So it was like, I mean, at that point, it's it's about QC and titles and, yes. you know, yes. details. But, yes. you know, we're supposed to have a lot longer for the details than we did. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when it did launch, the reaction was pretty, I mean, it was a genuine kind of word of mouth. Obviously, Netflix puts a lot of um, time and effort into marketing. But mm-hmm. what seemed unique to me was, you know, people were picking up on it on Twitter and social media. Ricky Gervais called it the best documentary ever, I think. Um, were you pretty much taken aback and surprised by how that happened? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, right before it launched, just I was just concerned that we might have some technical snafu or something, you know. And, I mean, I, I obviously had confidence that Netflix knows how to stream. Yeah. But, you know, you, you still, you just, you know... Um, so I wasn't really focused on, you know, how many, you know, how many viewers will we have the first week or anything Mm. like that. But then we had family and, um, you know, friends and crew in town for a launch party that we threw and, um, we just, you know, they, they stayed in town and we just started to hear from them. Like, you have to go on social media. Like people are talking about this, they're really responding to it and, like you mentioned Ricky Gervais and there was Alec Baldwin yeah. and we started to think like, oh, if, you know, if, if it's gotten the attention of celebrities, like they'll bring more people to mm-hmm. it. So we were really grateful um, about that. And yeah. And then we, Moira and I had like the most surreal thing happen because we were, we were driving to like a shopping mall with my mother right around the holidays and Alec Baldwin called Moira's cell phone and we were like, <laughs> you know, I just like, drove off the road. I'm putting you on speaker because Laura's mother is in the car and <laughs> yeah. we're going to make her day. And, it, you know, he was very sweet and he invited us to um, participate in his podcast and, mm-hmm. you know, we thought, oh, you know, maybe there's something here. So, um, But I think it really was the genius of Netflix yeah. to, to, to insist Yes. On the Friday before Christmas right. and not push to yeah. mid February or whatever we yeah, were yeah. you know, yeah. ignorantly asking for. Yeah. Um, because, you know, over the holidays, not only do people you know, we knew we were demanding a lot of our viewers. Like there's a lot of details. It's a really grueling series. Like you can't come home from work and just turn it on. Mm. Um so it was great that people had the time, you know, over the holidays. So mm. we cre- we certainly credit them with that. Mm-hmm. And people started campaigning, and um, you know there was talk of, you know, petitions to the president. Even though mm-hmm. he couldn't, everyone knows he couldn't really do anything. But is it now? As, you, as we sit here now, do you think you know? You talked about these the, the films about miscarriages of justice that happened before that did lead to actual you know turnarounds in their cases and sometimes laws being changed or at least being looked at. Is that happening now? Do you think that actually think things are changing in this in the social we justice? Do, system? We do see that. I mean, of course, there's so much 
there's so much going on as a response, but there there is concrete change happening. I mean, there have been in several different states in the U.S. There are there's a push for legislative reform as far as you know laws around juveniles being interrogated. Because, you know, one of the things that happens here is they have Brendan Dassey, who's just turned 16, who's really operating at sort of the level of a 10-year-old, ten, you know, being read his Miranda rights. And, you know, there are studies that you need to be in 10th grade for, you know, line number one, 12th grade to understand line number two. So he's waiving rights that he, he literally does not understand. So there are new laws being introduced of that a minor cannot waive their rights without having a lawyer there. You know, things that will make, it will save thousands of young children's lives mm-hmm. just by being there. Um, and so there are examples. Yeah, and Stephen's case, he's got a new lawyer. Um, he does. And yeah. she seems, I mean, I'm following her on Twitter, she seems very <laughs> <laughs> impressive and very mm-hmm. kind of, and, and was, she got, was she got involved because of the, because of the series? She did, actually. I mean, that's what she's told us. We've, right. we've been in contact with her. We've spoken to her about the potential of filming with her. She said she'd like to, you know, to be filmed by us. Um, but she was saying that what motivated her to become his attorney was her experience of watching the documentary. Well, so. I'm going to throw him to, to the audience, by the way. We have got time for, a lot, for questions. But my final question, I guess, is what... What lessons would you like us to learn um, as viewers? I mean, you know, on one level, it was in the very. I remember one of the things that, as the word of mouth phenomenon happened, there was people's emotional response. People were crying. You know, everyone who's watching it when we get to episodes mm-hmm. three and four, particularly I think with the Brendan section, right. it's such an emotionally devastating thing to watch. But what would you like to stand back for us and actually learn about about the justice system or about class or what 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 strikes you as the most important thing? A few things. I think they're all related, actually. But I would think. Um, you know, especially in today's world where, you know, something happens and it's out, you know, it's out there. Um, I mean, to take a moment to pause and to and and try to reserve judgment and, you know, to think and to ask questions and, you know, have empathy. Because, you know, I mean... As I learned here, I mean, nothing was as it appeared. There was so much more. And um, so that's what I think. I mean, I, I agree with all of those. I mean, I might add, you know, just in relation to, you know, if you do come away from this series caring about these individuals or eyes opened about the criminal justice system, um I just think it's important for all of us to remember how, you know, this isn't someone else's problem or Manitowoc County's problem. You know, it's it's happening. You know, I'm sure it's happening wherever each one of us lives. Mm. And, you know, just what we see in the series, you know, when when the system, you know, for whatever reasons doesn't get it right, that means that the real perpetrator is left out on the streets. So, you know, that affects all of us. This doesn't just affect the poor. Mm. So just sort of remembering that, you know, it's all of our responsibilities to demand a better system because, you know, it's going to affect you one of these days. Oh, chilling. <laughs> chilling thought. Uh, let's throw it over to, yeah, to, to you guys. Yeah. Um, I can come to you with the mic just so we can all hear, but it's a small room, but I'll come to you anyway. <laughs> 
Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask you one question. I think I've, uh, it's been a few weeks since I watched the program, sir, but I think I've, I think it's it's a valid question. When you first introduce, um, you know, Theresa Holbrook, um, your murder and her her being missing, or um, I think you have uh, some footage of her, you know, talking about that she's going to have a short life or that she might be suicidal, and I was. And you never come back to that. And, and I was wondering why you introduced that, because as a viewer, I thought you were going to come back to that. I thought, hang on, there's more to this woman than you know, meets the eye that, that she may have committed suicide. And so I wanted to ask you specifically about that scene. I, I mean, that's your particular read on, um, you know, her. that's her video diary. Yeah. I, I certainly didn't take it as though she was contemplating suicide. That was... You know, part of the reason actually we showed in the lower third that it said it was recorded three years earlier. Um, we want we wanted to make sure there wasn't that suggest that sort of temporal suggestion. Um, but I can tell you that we do come back to the video. It's the same video you see in episode nine um, during Stephen's sentencing hearing, and that's actually how we came across it. Teresa Halbuck's family um, played that video at Stephen's sentencing hearing, um, you know, to demonstrate what a lovely, you know, human being she was. And for the judge to hear from Teresa herself when thinking about whether, you know, Stephen was convicted and he was going to be sentenced to life. It was mandatory life. The question was, would the judge um, make him eligible for early release parole? Um, but beyond that, I mean, we certainly would have been very interested. We were very interested in, in trying to include more of Teresa and more of her family. It, we just didn't have the opportunity. We reached out to them. Moira and I sat down with Mike Halbach for coffee and told him, you know, who we were, why we were there. Um, and, you know, we wanted, we did want this to be as respectful and sensitive to the Hallbuck family and to Teresa herself as it could be. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have anything to add. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we tried to find whatever footage we could of Teresa or her family because there were some news packages that tried to um, do some pieces on her because we thought, you know, she was also somewhat lost in the trial. You know, she wasn't... There was not much ab- about her, and we wanted to try to include as much of her as possible because, of course, you know, what happened to her is the ultimate tragedy here. Um, so we had these two videos, and we tried to find a place in the series to to put a face and, and a, a real person for her. Um, well, first of all, totally riveting series. I think I binge-watched it in, in, in a weekend, like a lot of people maybe did. Um, I just wanted to know, being so immersed in the experience for such a long time, if you formed your own hypothesis as to what happened, and if you'd like to share that. Yes. The criminal justice system, the American criminal justice system is broken. That's, that's the conclusion we came away with. That I mean, our, our main question was, is the system any better off in 2015 than it was in 1985 when it clearly got it wrong? And, 
you know, unfortunately, we came away believing the answer to that very important question is no. So there's there's still a lot of work to be done. I think the good news is, um, you know, the series ha- seems to have galvanized um, lots of people who who want they want to find you know are there mechanisms in place for Americans to try to help the system and um, you know people are are doing things they're thinking about ta- you know when they receive a jury summons in the mail are they going to take it more seriously that sort of thing but you know with respect to you know do we have any theories about what happened to Teresa Halbach do we have any opinions about whether the police actually planted evidence um, no I mean yeah I just really. have a lot of you know unanswered questions really so yeah I mean as I said earlier you know trying to investigate the crime or trying to you know figure out what did happen to Teresa Halbuck was not our mission here um, and certainly while it was pending it, it wasn't our role um, so yeah I mean one of the things you asked earlier about you know what we hope people will take away or what we can all take away is um, one thing is sure that you know these are extremely complex matters and we were hoping that um, you know viewers would come away with an appreciation for the complexity and try to become more comfortable with ambiguity because after all, I mean, Moira mentioned earlier there were, you know, probably over 900 exhibits the state introduced at trial. And, you know, the reality is it was a circumstantial evidence case. There's no direct evidence other than, you know, Brendan Dassey's statements, I guess the state could say was direct evidence, but it was never admitted at Stephen's trial. So Ken Kratz can say that he's certain. You know, Mike Halbach can say that he's certain, and that's their prerogative. But I'm not certain. You know, I'm just... I'm certain that there's a lot of ambiguity, I guess, <laughs> is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, you you, talk, you asked about themes earlier, and did they emerge? And certainly this idea... I mean, I think we probably both, you know, went in with some naivete about how these things actually work how a criminal trial works, thinking we'll you'll have a trial, all the evidence will, you know, come in and they'll, the answer will reveal itself. Um, but, you know, as as we learned in this case and as, as Dean with a lot more experience in these matters than we have in this one case, you know, talks about, you know, <coughs> of course you're hoping that the truth will emerge, but it it really rarely and maybe almost never does. And so you have to you have to be able to have a, a quite deep understanding of what justice is, which is, you know, well, what are you going to do if, if you don't know the truth? You have to do something. And so really try to engage people in, you know, a thorough discussion of that, not, not let's take sides, let's take votes. He did it, he didn't do it. You know, it's not, it's not a popular vote here. This is something that happens in the courtroom. There's rules for how it happens. Discussing what those rules should be is what we should be talking about. Um, I was wondering whether you felt that there aren't more deep-dive, long-form documentaries as you characterize them because the broadcasters, the distributors, aren't offering filmmakers the opportunities or whether there just aren't sufficient stories out there, many stories out there, that justify such in-depth 
analysis as, as you guys did? I think there's probably endless stories that justify this kind of coverage, but I wouldn't lay it on the feet of there aren't the tributor, distributors offering this. I think, I think it's you know it's something to try to be solved together because even if there is going to be an outlet that will say sure we'll air ten parts, you know who's who's going to fund that at the outset? Is there going to be a mechanism that an institution like Netflix or the BBC would say, okay, well, well, we'll we'll start putting money in, even though we don't know where this is going, and even though it might take ten years before we can put it on air. So at the present moment, it it seems to be up to independent filmmakers to be willing to assume the risk. Um, you know, now at least there there are outlets, so you can at least have your target in mind. But um, I guess it's yet to be seen whether whether broadcasters will start to invest earlier in projects. Yeah, and they're probably more likely to do that for established or veteran filmmakers than they are for first-time filmmakers. Um, or, you know, with a project like this that's a narrative documentary, it's not, you know, I want to do five, you know, a five-part series on the cosmos or something. That's quite different. So, Hi, sorry. It's just a, a small point. And... Um, and the opening titles, it says written by, which mm-hmm. I touched on this last night. It was one of the things that triggered me into a kind of a brief three or four episode complete conviction that this was entirely made up <laughs> and that I was in some kind of power. That, that it was the most brilliant piece of, I mean, it's a brilliant piece of drama anyway. But why did you choose to put written by? Well, it felt like the best verb to attach to what you had to do to to structure the series out of all of these materials, even though it wasn't totally on paper with words. You know, your words were the footage, and your it wasn't strictly editing. Um, I mean, we were, collect, you know, I was the editor, but that doesn't mean that Laura wasn't the storyteller just as much as I was. So, yeah, we had a an entire wall, and... Moira's cutting room that was how many feet long is that? I don't know. I'm not good spatially. <laughs> I think I think it was uh twelve feet by six feet. Yeah. So we had, you know, note cards the entire you know, I'm not underestimating later. the incredible <laughs> things. I just thought it was just the use of that word I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. So on the screen it says creators. That's Oh, oh, we we never said that. We didn't take that credit. (laughs) Hi. Um, Well, I also wanted to just say, obviously, congratulations. But I work in the scripted side fiction. Um, The amount that myself and my friends have talked about it, and how I think it's really kind of made us approach our work quite differently. Mm. So, yeah, big influence for all of us. But I just wanted to know a little bit more about the process in depth. You're saying about that big wall. Yeah. Sort of, I was interested how, did you have to be very self-disciplined about how you logged things in the first place and how you kind of coped with those thousands of bits of material you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, there was somewhat of an evolving process. And unfortunately, you know, you log the early stuff and then it's <laughs> logged in that old system. Um, but it, there was a ton of organizing and... I mean, for the first, I don't know, four or five years, um, I was much more doing the work of an assistant editor mm-hmm. than actually editing, was just 
reviewing and sorting and figuring out how to actually have this stuff organized. Um, Were you sort of having to sketch out the story as you went along in terms of thinking, oh, that's something I could use that way, just kind of trying to keep it all in your heads is how I'm fascinated, really. A lot of it was in our heads. But, um, I mean, organizationally, too, you had to organize it in a way that you could communicate with other editors or other assistant editors. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, things were organized literally by what it what by what tape it was on and by you know who it was but then what then you get into episode projects so you have a lot of things are in a lot of places um you know so all of Len Kaczynski's interviews are going to be in you know the episode three project and the episode four project you know so Mm -hmm. but um I mean it was very structured you know we did have we had an outline the outline had acts the acts had scenes, you know, I mean, we were trained as, as narrative writers. So, you know, dramatic narrative, when do you introduce a character? You know, what's their obstacle? You know, what's the turning yeah, point? Yeah, I noticed you using your hero's journey kind of <laughs> analogy <laughs> early on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask two quick um, I just got two quick questions. Well, one of which is quick and the other one's more complex, I guess. Um, the first one is what you're going to do next. Um, maybe something light and fun, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and the second one is what I can't work out is why they never seem to have interrogated any other suspects or anything like that. It's just really weird that they seem to have so focused on that. Mm-hmm. And it just, for me, the narrative just like you keep thinking, well, what about the ex-boyfriend or the mm-hmm. one of the brothers who works on there and is a bit feral, maybe? It just mm-hmm. seems very weird that it's just that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so there's the easy one and the harder one. <laughs> you can take the easy one. <laughs> it was funny. I was going to just start with the harder ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's that much harder. I mean, you know, this phenomenon of of tunnel vision is is documented, and you know, it it happens in in all human beings, and um, it and it's ha- substantiated here. I would say because I don't mean oh, to interrupt sure. you, but just to build on what you're saying, there's a scene um, in the series where. You know, we call it the system descends. It's basically law enforcement. They've found Teresa Halbach's vehicle on the Avery property. You know, law enforcement is rushing to the scene. You see sort of the cavalry coming. And um, you hear, you know, the officer calling into dispatch. This is within 30 minutes of the car being found asking, you know, is Stephen Avery in custody yet? I mean, it's like this is a 40-acre property. There are numerous people who live on the property he's in fact Stephen technically doesn't even live on the property he's in a rented trailer uh you know next door next door and you know this this is what you hear so but yeah I mean you know it's how it's how we all make sense of the world you know you have this piece and this piece and you put it together to make sense and you know professions are there often to to fight human instinct um, but you can't get away from it. And so it's, it's, it's when the mechanisms and the protocol that's in place to, to make sure that tunnel vision, you know, doesn't have a palpable effect, that of course it's going to happen. So, you know, they look at, they just start telling a story that makes sense to them. And you start looking at that and not looking elsewhere. And I think that's a very common problem. You know, sometimes it has huge ramifications, sometimes less so. But I think it's quite common. 
And the defense did, you know, at Stephen's trial, they wanted to make a bigger deal out of the fact that um, Stephen became an immediate suspect. Um, but Judge Willis, Stephen's trial judge, at the pretrial stage ruled that, you know, Dean and Jerry would not be able to argue, um, you know, so-called third-party liability. They couldn't name names except Brendan Dassey. Judge Willis would allow them to point at Brendan Dassey and say, Brendan killed Teresa. But, you know, they, they said they weren't going to do that because they didn't believe Brendan was involved. But like, then you're supposed to easier question of what, of what we're oh, going to yeah, do yeah. next. What do you do next? Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, we're looking at, at several different projects, um, both on the scripted side and on the non-scripted side. Um, I mean, really, you know, I think everything we're thinking about doing is socially relevant, you know, looking at our world today. How can we understand this world we live in? Um, I think the way we look at is, um, you know, sometimes there is something you can point your camera at and sometimes you just can't get access to it Mm -hmm. or it's not going to be unfolding. I mean, we were so thankful to come upon this story at the time where we could actually document it unfolding um so you know we count our blessings and don't count on that happening again so you know sometimes you can do the research and then you know write the story so um and as we mentioned we are seriously looking into doing future episodes of making a murderer um i think going back to la to to sort that out so presumably netflix would 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 love that (laughs) think you should all write to Netflix if you're interested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Fine. I think we've got time for about one more question, maybe. Sorry, we, we could talk all night. Yeah. I was kind of really envious of the fact that when you're making the series, you can have one episode that's like one hour ten, and then mm-hmm. one episode that's 43 minutes, mm-hmm. and that you can really get into that detail, because whenever I've made crime documentaries in the past, say for the BBC, you're sort of restricted to maybe 58 minutes, mm-hmm. and it's all this wonderful detail that you can never, ever get in, and you just manage to get, but you made it so compelling, because I always found it really compelling, but you know when you tell people, oh yeah, whatever, whatever, that's a bit boring, <laughs> um, but to see that, and not to be restricted how liberating was that? Did you know you could do that, really? Well, we knew because we were partnered with Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, the one thing we had to be careful of was um, the required minimum. Each episode... But we ne- cheated on episode yeah. eight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what so, uh, 45 minutes. Did you have 43 on that one? Yeah. I think yeah. <laughs> but they saw the rough cut and were like, it's cool, um, which is good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing we, – we didn't, we didn't want to abuse that freedom in any way. We felt like we still need to be disciplined and we still need to earn, you know, minute. each minute that mm-hmm. it's on the screen. Um, I mean, the other incredible thing about partnering with Netflix – and we'll, you know, we really do think the series is what it is because we partnered with them and they gave us all the creative freedom. Um, we went to them with an outline for eight episodes. And I think it was, you know, maybe about seven months before we delivered and we were like, uh, it needs to be ten. 
And, you know, there was a little, I wouldn't even say pushback, but just sort of, oh, really? You know, that sort of thing. Um, but in the end, I mean, they they totally supported our vision and just let us execute, you know. So, but I, I totally agree with you. I mean, if we had to fit it into some sort of different framework, it, it would have been something different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, as, as storytellers, I mean, having you know, in this streaming platform where you don't have a time slot exactly, Mm -hmm. you know, it means that, you know, the format can adjust to the story Mm -hmm. rather than you have, you have to change the story if not every story is 58 minutes. Exactly, yeah. You know, not every book is 102 pages, Mm -hmm. you know, you have different lengths. So, I mean, I think it's a really exciting time. Yeah, brilliant. Can I just ask just a quick follow-up question to that? can I ask, what does this mean for, for, for documentary in terms of narrative storytelling? Mm-hmm. Um, I say this, be, I, I made the, the murder detectives for Channel 4, um, and Channel 4 gave me a considerable amount of latitude and a lot of risk-taking, and in fact, I owed it for a similar reason that you did, in terms of the overall passion. They gave me quite a, a great deal of latitude and time slot and time actually Mm -hmm. now but there is a sea change in documentary uh, I was asked whether making a merger inspired me in terms of what I did for Channel 4 and then there's references being made to the jinx um, and there is there is and serial uh, and so and so there is in fact a real attitudinal change to storytelling Mm-hmm. And and I think it's quite inspirational, uh, and I think we take lessons from what I thought this was superb, um, and and it inspired me, albeit that I'd finished making what I was making. But nonetheless, I think there are general takeout lessons for us as filmmakers and as documentarists, and I hope that this is a genre that in, is developing in its narrative form. Is that how you've seen it, or or do you see this as a trend that can only develop further? Well, I mean, I hope, you know, some of the things just in our struggle to, you know, this whole time we believed that people would be interested in the details. Um, You know, people, you know, are willing to take on flawed characters. You know, I mean, we had executives tell us, you know, well, I'm not sure Stephen's likable enough or, you know. But, you know, we had so much faith in, in viewers that, you know, we were told, oh, people have short attention spans. They're not going to want to sit in that scene that long. But um, I don't know. I guess we just had faith in people that they are interested. They want to learn more about their world. The sound bites they're getting on Twitter and this 24-hour news cycle is they know everything, and yet they know nothing. And there's that sense. So I think it is a very exciting time for in-depth storytelling. But, you know, at the same time, I think with all these different outlets, you know, I mean, you can have the 10-minute documentary about this little thing or you can have the 10-hour documentary. I mean, you can explore the world however it needs exploring. Last question we're going to go. I I just wanted to ask, Netflix famously don't release figures of how many people but do you have any idea of how many people no idea at all people have seen because it's you know it's extraordinary because it's worldwide and you know i've heard people suddenly who was at the time working at the bbc said 
I'm trying to figure out how something like this gets the traction that it does mm-hmm. when traditional broadcast television doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the whole world knows about your series. They don't share numbers with us. Yeah, we, we <laughs> certainly did not, you know, we were not privy to any of that. Um, I mean, you mentioned earlier that there was a petition mm. that was, um, you know, submitted to the White House. Um, and I think there were maybe half million signatures on that petition. And I, you know, I mentioned Alec Baldwin earlier. I think people really started to sit up, and, and the media in particular, when that petition, you know, reached the White House and people were waiting for a response from Pre- uh, President Obama. Um, so I think that, you know, that really was some indication of, you know, the um, the interest in the series and um, how seriously people were taking it. But we, we don't know. I mean, honestly, if they gave me a figure, it wouldn't mean anything to me. I just, I don't know. Um, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't try to find out more or how it relates to other things, but I just don't know. Thank you. Sadly, I think we have run out of time. We could we could talk for days, couldn't we? Let's face it. Um, thank you so much to Laura, Laura and Moira for...